The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Ann Hanley, author of Everybody Writes, your new and improved go-to guide to creating ridiculously good content. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back Anne Hanley to talk about her book, Everybody Writes, your new and improved go-to guide to creating ridiculously good content published by Wiley. Anne Handley is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author who speaks worldwide about how businesses can escape marketing mediocrity to ignite tangible results. IBM named her one of the seven people shaping modern marketing. She is the chief content officer at Marketing Profs, a LinkedIn influencer, a keynote speaker, mom, dog person, and writer. She is the co-author of Content Rules, how to create killer blogs, podcasts, videos, ebooks, webinars, and more that engage customers and ignite your business. Her books have been translated into 19 languages, including Turkish, Korean, Italian, Chinese, and Japanese. She's contributed commentary and bylines to Entrepreneur Magazine, Inc. Magazine, Mashable, Huffington Post, American Express, NPR, and the Wall Street Journal. And interesting fact. Her favorite book of all time is E.B. White's Charlotte's Web. Salutations. My name is Charlotte. Charlotte A. Cavatica. With the right words, you can change the world. I need words and lots of them. Hey, look. Words. And congratulations on the second edition of Everybody Writes, and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is that Julia Roberts playing Charlotte? It was the uh, trailer for, it was from the trailer for the 2006 movie. Oh, wow. I think that's, it sounded like Julia Roberts. Okay. Well, if anybody hears that and knows Julia Roberts, please don't tell her that I use that. So, uh, mm. you know, help, help, be, help me out. It could be a copyright violation right there, my friend. But. Yes, I know. Oh, and I read about that in the book here, <laughs> but I didn't want to, oh gosh, forget oh, it. Let's, let's stop. Don't tell Carrie O'Shea Gorgon. <laughs> she's a lawyer. She was one of the many people that was uh, mentioned in the book. So folks who are new to the Marketing Book Podcast, they need to know that Anne Hanley 
was a very early supporter of the show. She was on episode five back in the mm. beginning of 2015, and this will be episode 411. And wow. so every, you know, 406 episodes, please um, come back. Mm. And, you know, when you're the host of the Marketing Book Podcast, you do a little bit of research. That'll be in uh, on September 6th. 2030. Mm. So go ahead and mark your calendars. But you were also on Authors in Quarantine Getting Cocktails, and I appreciate mm-hmm. you coming back on. That was the lockdown started, and none of us knew what to do. And I was hearing from a lot of listeners saying, oh, what should I do? I just got laid off and all that. And I just, nobody knew what was going on. And I thought, you know what, let me reach out to these authors that have been on the show and ask if maybe they'd like to do a, a daily chat just to talk about what their take on all this is. And I sent mm-hmm. an email out to the, at the time it was over 200 authors, just over, now it's been over 300 authors. And I said, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. You know, we could do it at the cocktail hour. And within one hour, I'd already heard back from over 100 <laughs> authors. Quite a, quite a open rate, you know, quite a, quite a response there. And they said, Douglas, I'm available. I can't travel. I can't go anywhere and I'm already drinking. So yeah, I'll talk to you. (laughs) And so I did that for a few months and then my liver needed a rest. So we got to episode 66 and you closed it down, Ann Hanley. You were the Mm -hmm. very last one. After Ann Hanley, I was like, okay, we can can go on. So there you go. And uh, also want to mention that I've met you, gotten to meet you a couple times and, uh, you know, I'm a big fan. And on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com, I'm including a picture of you and me at one of the marketing profs conferences where you all had a uh, Oktoberfest party. And everybody was uh, dressed up, you know, as one does at Oktoberfest. And there was a blonde braided wig that I got hold of, mm-hmm. and I put it on. I wore that. I don't think I wore a dress, but I wore the wig. And there's a picture of the two of us together, and I'm including that. Everybody can see that. I just I, I mentioned that because I really looked good. I think. Mm-hmm. You did. Yeah, you're smoking. Thank you, thank you. Appreciate that. So, and the cover of the book says that this is 10 percent funnier than mm-hmm. the original. And I recently interviewed our mutual friend uh, Melanie Diesel about her book, Prove It. And she mentioned this book. And, uh, you know, I guess people are asking, well, how did you come up with 10%? Can you, can you prove that? You know, how, how, did, how did you get to the 10% number? Yeah, I think I commented on your LinkedIn post in which you signaled that we were going to be having this conversation today, Doug. And I, I think I did say that it's a little bit of a secret algorithm. Oh, of course. Yeah, the most I can say is that it involved uh, a series of pretty complex math. I had both geometry and algebraic equations as part of it. I used a slide slide rule and a compass as well. So I wish that I could, you know, detail it a little bit more for you, but um, but then you'd but, have to kill me. I yeah, I can't. So. Yeah, and actually, you mentioned Paul Ratzer in the book. He wrote AI uh, for marketing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there was some machine learning going on there too. Maybe, but I think it was 10 percent or more funnier. And I know funny. I'm a clownfish. Plus, last weekend, when I was reading the book, I was laughing out loud quite a bit. So, there you go. Were you? That's impressive. Good. Yeah. Well, so, in terms of the book, it's, like I said, it's almost 400 pages. It's in um, 91 very short chapters. Don't let that scare you, folks. They're, they, it, 
it goes by in a flash. And there's uh, seven parts, and we can't really get to all of them, but uh, just let me mention what they are. There's the, the writing rules, how to write better and how to hate writing less, <laughs> writing rules, grammar and usage, voice rules, story rules, publishing rules, 20 things marketers write, and then finally the content tools, which is a very interesting section, and we won't go into that. But it's a real rabbit hole because as you go through that last section, you start seeing all these tools, some of which I had never heard of. And you went to a number of people, authors, marketers, business people, and said, what's one content tool you can't live without? Mm-hmm. And I thought the list was, and, and plus the ones that you use, it was really, really interesting. But everybody's obsessed with tools. We're not going to talk about those, <laughs> if, that's, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. So let me just read a couple quick excerpts from the beginning of the book and then uh, get going here. I want to start on a section on page 11 where you write, sure, many how-to-write books exist in addition to this one, but most offer up pithy maxims more than true advice. They're entertaining to read and they can be a kind of rallying cry, but they lack a can-do how-to attitude. Or the other extreme, writing books that get too deep into the weeds of construction. Great if you're looking to up your score on a college composition. Not so helpful if you just need some guidance on how not to sound like a total idiot when you craft this week's customer mailing. What's also hard to find is a book that distills ideas about the craft of writing simply and memorably framed for a business professional or content creator as opposed to the novelist or journalist. I wrote this book because I couldn't find what I wanted. Part writing guide, part handbook on the rules of good sportsmanship and marketing, and all-around reliable desk companion for anyone creating or directing content. And then on the next uh, couple pages later, you write, it's meant to be your practical go-to guide, offering the most important and useful guideposts, lighting the path to better writing, and making us all happier, more fulfilled writers who love our work. And finally, I want to go back to page three, where you write, It's tricky writing this introduction to you. There may be two kinds of writers, but there are many kinds of readers. You might be picking this up for the first time. Hi, new friend. Or you've read the first edition of this book, and you're wondering what's new in this one. Good to see you again. Or maybe you've cracked open these pages looking for answers to one or more of a few questions, like, how is everybody actually a writer? Am I? Does good writing matter anymore? How is content marketing changing? Has writing evolved since the first edition? Does everybody really write in an age of tick face and web three and robots spewing a spit coin of social posts in less time than it took you to read this sentence? Is the effort worth it? Is it as simple as showing up and working the muscles? So, Anne, you know how you do something or you drive somewhere, or you see a sign or something and you think of another, you think of a person, it's just for some reason they pop into your head at the, at the same time. I don't know if you'd experience that, but it happens with me. And every uh, Monday through Friday when I'm working out and I'm, I'm doing some push-ups, for some reason, I always <laughs> think of you when I'm starting to do the push-ups. And then when I was reading this book, I was reminded why. <laughs> Tell us, why does Douglas Burdett strangely start thinking about Anne Hanley when he's doing push-ups? And what does that have to do with Anne Hanley? That's so funny. I was wondering where you were going with that. Um, I mean, I don't know why you think about me with push-ups. I can only imagine. No, but I had forgotten why. 
Oh, I see. Right. You had forgotten why. In the first edition of the book, I talked about how writing is very much like working out. It's, you know, becoming a better writer is like working the muscle. And I opened the first edition of the book. So the first edition published eight years ago. I opened that first edition talking about how I had just done a push-up like the previous week and how proud I was of myself because I had always thought of myself as stunningly unathletic, but yet here I was like doing a push-up, which, you know, sounds not very impressive probably to a lot of people, but to me, it felt like a real accomplishment. And so in the second edition of the book, I was sort of having a little bit of fun, but also you know, is seriously saying the question that I get most often from the first edition of the book is not, you know, some high-minded question like, how has writing changed? Or tell me, um, does good writing matter anymore? Or how is content marketing changing? And can you please map that out on this whiteboard right here? It's like none of that. Usually I get, so how many push-ups can you do now? <laughs> and it makes me laugh, but also I think there's something real in that. And I think the push-up as a proxy for getting stronger at something that you were thought you were bad at is such a powerful metaphor for how many of us feel as writers. Um, and just like I thought that I was not capable of even a single push-up, I think many of us in the business world think that we're not capable of ridiculously good writing, but I am here to tell you that you are. And that is why I share that push-up story. And the answer to that question, by the way, how many can I do? Unfortunately, I got up to about, I think I was up to about 25, 24, 25 at one point, which is pretty amazing yeah. for somebody like me, having good. not a ton of muscle mass, but proud of that. And uh, But then I injured my shoulder. And so I have not gone back to my trainer since then because I'm still kind of uh, working through some, some recovery on that. Oh, but, that's right. Yeah, it did happen. I mean, I definitely got stronger and started, you know, it was, it's, uh, it happened. It's just that, uh, you know, unfortunately, the metaphor kind of falls apart when I talk about how I injured my shoulder. So. But I think you mentioned the book. You slipped on some ice in Boston and you yes, had to get a rotator exactly. thing cut done. Yeah, and, it's a, yeah. Well, I've, I've had them both fixed on my shoulders and I'm back to doing push-ups. So there's some inspiration for you, mm -hmm. which you can talk about in the third edition uh, of the book. So let's tackle one of the things that you touched on and that I did. Why does writing matter more now in this era of <laughs> what you call twit face and all these uh, different platforms and uh, allegedly limited attention spans? Why does, mar why does writing matter? More now than ever. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a, there's a few reasons. Um, first of all, we are all increasingly creators. And I think all of us in marketing can certainly vibe with that. Um, but I think actually it's broader than just marketing. I think it's true of sales. I think it's true of all of us in business because content, especially in a post-COVID age, is very much the mechanism that drives that real business growth. And why is that? It's because content is the thing that so often our prospects and our customers are engaging with. You know, it's literally the way that we are that we are sharing our story and that we are carrying our personality, showing our personality to our audiences. Um, so that's that's part of the reason. I think another reason is because our 
engaging voices matter a whole lot now, you know, especially in a world where, you know, we can get anything at a moment's notice, we can fire up any kind of online store, I can fire up Amazon and and order almost anything under the sun. Um, I can order almost even in a B2B construct, you know, it's like my, a tool that I might look at that's offered by a B2B company looks very similar to maybe a tool offered by another B2B solution. And so, you know, what's the difference there? It's like, how are we telling our story? Not just what we're saying, but how we're telling it. So I think our voices definitely matter. And I think especially in in a world where AI writing platforms and AI writing tools are increasingly going to be part of how we're communicating with customers, I think AI tools are only powerful when they're in the hands of people who can actually write, who know how to use them, which sounds so silly, but is 100% true. Um, and I think the final point about why our words matter, and I guess it, it kind of encapsulates the, the, the couple of points I, I shared just now, is that our online words are very much our emissaries. They are the mechanism through which we are communicating with our customers, and they're signaling so many things. <laughs> to the people who matter to our business. Do they seem like they get me? Do they understand me? Do they seem like they're a, a, a good company to work with? Um, are, do I feel seen by them? Do, they, do I feel like they're articulating the exact problems or issues that I have as a business or as a person? And so I think for all of those reasons, you know, writing matters more now and, and not less. There's I don't buy into this whole mantra that you know, in a world of podcasting and and live audio and uh, and live broadcasts on LinkedIn, that writing doesn't matter. I mean, I think words are the backbone of how we communicate, and, and they always will be. Let's talk about something important. Okay, Anne, I've just got to share with everyone a line from the beginning of the book that got me really, really fired up. We are a planet of publishers, yet many of us are polluting the pool with content rubbish. We are all creators, yet many of us are squandering the opportunity we have to communicate directly with those we care most about reaching. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Whole audience participation there. So... (laughs) That I, I, it just got me so fired up. And that was just the beginning of the book, folks. That was only on page four. So hold on. It's quite a ride. Now, earlier I mentioned that there, you said there's two kinds of people who might be reading the book. But you also uh, mentioned that there are two kinds of people, those who think they can write and those who think they can't. <laughs> Explain mm-hmm. what you mean there. Yeah, I mean, I think there are two kinds of people in the world. There are people who think they can write and they over that we tend to over index uh, our our capacities and and our capabilities there. Um and then you have people who feel like they can't write. And what I say is very often both are wrong. Very often the people who think they can write maybe haven't really thought about their writing in, in quite a long time. Um, maybe they learned how to write in school, but I make the point in the book that writing has changed so much that it is a skill that we need to constantly not just hone, but also evolve. Um, and then the second point or the second kinds of kind of people around, you know, people who think they can't write very often, those people are what I would call um, adult onset writers. You know, they've <laughs> suffered some trauma in their past. Maybe a, a teacher or a figure of authority told them that they were not a good writer at one point, mm-hmm. or maybe um, they have some 
feeling that they're terrible at grammar, which is what I hear a lot from from business people as well. And none of that matters. Like you need to let go of of the fact that you are not a writer. You need to empower yourself and just kind of let yourself be the writer who you think you, who I know you can be. Because, you know, again, in this world, I think we are all writers. Yes. And you write the key to being a better writer is to write. Yeah. <laughs> and don't write a lot, just write often. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh, writing practiced once a week is an obligation, right? It's not going to build any muscle. It's not going to become a habit and a practice. And to become a better writer, you essentially just have to show up and practice. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called all-inclusive TV, how booming brands are reimagining TV advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. I want to jump to uh, something on Chapter 5, page 31, you write, The other day I read an article citing a company's success and its, quote, remarkable ability to, quote, churn out content. Why does hearing churn out content make your heart sink? Ugh, it, yeah, it, it does make my heart sink. And um, it's the problem, I think, that a lot of companies have with their content marketing and with their with their content period we tend to think that well i think there's a couple things going on there i think we need to slow down and stop the churn and think instead about how do we actually use this opportunity to connect directly with the audience who is hopefully opting in raising their hands to hear from us um and so, and I think the other thing that that kind of bothers me about that tweet that I saw, um, or that article that I saw, was that you know no successful brand really churns out content. I think there's a mindset shift there that needs to needs to happen because you need to think about what does my audience need from me. <laughs> right. like, what do what do I need to be saying to them in a way that it improves their lives that offers them value that shoulders their burdens that helps them feel like I can I understand the problems that they have. Um, and so I think really what I'm talking about there is shifting your mindset to think of publishing as a kind of privilege. Like we all have the capacity to connect with audiences through publishing. But yet I don't think we're always mindful of how special an opportunity that is. And I say it in the book too, like maybe that sounds quaint or naive, but I don't think so because I think that if more of us, more more organizations think about the newsletters, the blog posts, the tweets, the social feeds, like any of it, the landing pages, the podcast landing pages, like any of it, any piece of 
anything that we're creating as part of our, our marketing programs. I think if we shift our mindset to think that it's a little bit of an honor to have this direct relationship with an audience, then I think our content will be better, better for it. And I think our audiences will respond differently as well. Yes, and there's a great mindset shifting section in the book where you where Anne writes about, you know, high quality content is packed with uh, three things primarily, clear mm-hmm. utility, mm-hmm. inspiration, and empathy for the audience. Mm-hmm. I just think it's also funny that you have to remind folks your audience doesn't have to read your content. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like you're uh, they're sitting in a movie theater before a movie and they have to watch those ads on the screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Yeah, no one has to read this. I mean, I think the more you can let that voice not paralyze you, but I think call you to a higher place in terms of how you think about your content, the more you can listen to that voice inside your head that says no one has to read this, I think the better off we are. <laughs> yeah. That's actually a holdover from my journalism school days. And I think that yes. the idea of of journalism being a foundation for modern day content marketing is is so valuable. You know, I honestly believe that every every student in college should take a journalism course, if only for the one takeaway of thinking of your audience first, which is exactly what journalists are taught to do in journalism school. It's not about you and what you want to say. It's about how can I explain this or how can I how can I give this information to the reader on the other end. And I think that's, you know, it's that reader-centric mindset that I learned in journalism school. That's where I first heard that mantra that no one has to read this. Um, and I think it's just so valuable from a mindset shift for content creators or any kind of creators within within companies or even as individuals to to think about that. I like Doug, I even think about that when I'm writing a tweet. You know, it's like that's how seriously I take this. Mm-hmm. Because so much of what I see, not just on social media, but just, you know, everywhere, it's just so gratuitous. It's it's really much more about the individual and less about just taking that one extra half step, yes. which is Yes, it can be about you, but why should I care? Like, why should yes. anybody else care? Because we're all busy. We all have a lot going on. And yeah. so make sure that it, that the value is relevant to me. Whatever you're saying, just make it relevant to me. Yes, and I think that is why the greatest content marketers, some of the greatest content marketers came from a journalism background. Mm-hmm. And uh, even my uh, last content director, he was a journalist. And mm-hmm. now he's the head of a content for a software company. And he actually took me to lunch this week. It was on <laughs> on Wednesday, and uh, I, guess I hadn't seen him for a while. And we, you know, we had a great time. We finished up, and he said, "I've I've got to get back." And I said, "Oh, do you, do you have a call?" And he said, "No, I just got a text that Ann Hanley's book is out for delivery." <laughs> what? <laughs> it was it was the day the pu- public he'd pre ordered it, and he goes, "No, I just I just want to get back and." S- <laughs> I can see that. Oh you know one other funny story about your book? This is just how good your books are. My first edition was stolen. What? No, I had it in the office. And I think, so we had we hired, you know, uh, journalism students or uh, interns, like English majors. And I think it was Amanda. <laughs> I think she took it because mm. Pete is trying to get it back. He goes, no, no, she won't respond. <laughs> so I've got my second edition now. So anyway, and your book is so good, people steal it. I, I don't mm. know if you need that as a blurb on Amazon, but feel free to. Uh, well, you can feel free to put that there because I think that's beautiful. It's your <laughs> okay. story, Doug. That's that's right. That's right. So, Ann Hanley, uh, this isn't having to do with 
you know, going to some parties with you. But one of the most helpful, liberating things I learned from you years ago had to do with barfing. Oh, my God. So that just like that just really triggered my gag reflex right there. You needed to put a warning on that one, my friend. Yeah, well, I guess I should ask the uh, the audience. Are you guys having a killer time? I hope so. But explain the concept of barf up the ugly first draft because once I learned about that concept a few years ago, I even had it up on my little card on my desk and it was like, mm-hmm. don't kill yourself with the first draft. I I also Mm -hmm. thought of like a potter's wheel, just slap the clay on there and then start working on it. But talk about something that's had so much personal meaning for me. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, raw clay is a good analogy. Um, I think writing the ugly first draft is basically where you, you show up and you just vomit all over the page. Um, And the reason why I think that's such a valuable exercise is because it gives you permission to not worry about things like grammar or spelling or even writing incomplete sentences. Like very often my first drafts are literally just a series of bullet points, you know, just points that I want to make. You don't worry about things like, is this empathetic to the customer? Like, is someone actually going to want to read this? Like you could just put that all out of your head and just sort of get it all on the page. In my experience, Doug, this is the hardest piece, and it's the part that I can't stand. Like, I hate the most. I love aspects of writing. I love pieces of writing. This piece, I do not like at all. It's the hardest thing for me, and I will procrastinate, you know, the heck out of this stage. Um, but Yeah, but you you're know, getting good money. You're getting good value out of your Netflix sub- subscription. <laughs> yeah, that's true, actually. Um, while I'm sitting on the couch, just, you know, inhaling nachos. Yeah, so it is. I think it's a really tough thing to do, but giving yourself permission to write badly is also setting you up to be able to polish it and to write ridiculously well later on. But you got to get through that. And so I, the only way that I know how to do it is to just show up, get it on the page, and then and then move on. Like move on through through various steps of um, what I identify as like the writing GPS. So how do you take yourself from a discombobulated mess, which is the ugly first draft is something that actually feels coherent and fun and lively and could only come from you. You can't get to those later stages without first starting with that ugly first draft. And so, yeah, I think it's just so, so critical for the writing process. The thing is though, you can't stop there, right? You've got to go on to those other steps because if you stop there, that's hmm, that's not a good place to stop. You well, can't. because you become so dis, uh, discouraged, I would think. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's and, not and gonna, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> it's not going to have traction. I mean, it's just yeah. But a lot of writers do start and stop there. I I think I see it less now than I did eight years ago in the first edition, or when content marketing was a newer discipline. Now I think you can't get away with it. There was a time where I think you could populate a blog post, a, a, a company blog, with a bunch of ugly first drafts, and it didn't matter quite so much. Uh-huh. But now I definitely think it does. Yes, like I said, it's a it's a long book, just jam packed with things. I there's just a few things I can ask you about. So I wanted to ask this from page fifty six again, just so the listener knows we're really really scratching the surface here. But I- explain what you mean when you write that content created only to further a search engine ranking is a massive waste of time and effort. 
Yeah. You know, it's uh, just before I talk about that, I just want to mention one thing. It's like you've, you've mentioned a few times just about how this is a longer book and about, you know, 91 pages, I mean, 91 chapters and 400 pages. And I actually worried about that at first, because if you hold this book side by side with this, with the original book, it is thicker. There is more in here. <laughs> it's like, I, there's a number of new chapters. There's a number of new topics. I also cut some stuff. I cut the boring parts as I oh, really? talk about. Yeah, there's that's, some that's right. That you mentioned that. Yeah, is not in the not. There's some things in this that are not in the second edition that was in the first edition. Uh, I also move move some things around. Um, but I definitely added more than I more than I cut. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, because our jobs as creators has expanded. Um, we are responsible for more things that businesses are able to produce so many more kinds of content and kinds of assets that like video. Yeah. The writing has only increased and video is, you might be saying, well, that's not writing. Well, actually it is because the best video starts with a script. So, you know, there's all that, that going on. But the second thing is because my thinking has changed and it's evolved. So in this new edition, I have a whole new section about tone of voice, which is not in the first edition. I greatly expanded the story section because how I think about storytelling in 2022 is very different than how I thought about it eight years ago. So yes, I worried about the length, but I also think that it's extremely comprehensive. And to your point, I think it's a quick, easy read. I I designed it to be the kind of book you can, you could dip in and out of and, and, you know, get something out of it in short bursts. Um, well, and there's a lot of good white space, which you talk about. White space yeah. is part of writing. But I think it's um, it's one that's going to be on people's desks because um, you're going to need to go back to it to brush up on something when somebody comes in and says, hey, the boss is trying to get a speaking gig at a conference. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let, me, let me go to that chapter, you know. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just wanted to mention that because it's uh, – it, I like I was worried about it initially, um, and you'll notice too that that my voice is very different in this one. In some cases, that made it. Um, I mean, I think it makes it inherently more readable because it carries you along. It feels like it's a conversation with mm-hmm. me. Um, so, anyway, what was your question? The reason I asked this is because I think a lot of people really connect content with search engine ranking. Yes. First and foremost, and you write that, you know, if you're if you're only writing content to to boost search engine ranking, it's a massive waste of time and effort, which could sound controversial or confusing to some people. Mm. Yeah, the key in that sentence is only, right? So if you're if the customer, I'm using air quotes right now, if the customer you're trying to satisfy is a search engine then that's a waste of time. So I'm not saying that SEO has no value, but I'm saying it's secondary to thinking of your customer first, your prospect first, because I think we get into trouble when we think about search first and then we think about the customer or the yes. prospect. So uh, that's it's the use of that word only, right? Yes. It's not about <laughs> search doesn't matter. Of course it matters. It's how we're, we're discovered often. But I think that... By focusing on the people, how they search for you, the words that they use, how they are going to and what they're going to find when they when they do find you through a search engine, then that's what you want to focus on. You don't want to focus on just optimizing a page just to get somebody there. You want to optimize a page to get them and hold them. So it's a very different mindset. Yes, and it seems like uh, it might be a subtle difference to some folks, but right for the human first, 
the search engine second. And mm-hmm. it also brings to mind the quote, I, you probably wrote it. It was, Google doesn't love you until everyone else does first. Mm. So. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't write that, but um, let's just say I did. Yeah, let's go with it. Because if the humans like it, uh, the algorithms really sort of come through. But I don't want to talk anymore about algorithms because I'm afraid that you might kill me for trying to get you to disclose uh, something. Um, <laughs> one uh, about, about the 10%. Um, yes. One thing, last sec- the, the question I want to ask from this first section. Uh, it, it brought to mind a quote uh, you had in here from Michael Brenner, who's been on the podcast. Behind every piece of bad content is an executive who asked for it. Mm. (laughs) I love it. So somewhat related to that, what advice do you have for listeners on avoiding writing by committee? Oh, Oh. my goodness. Yeah, that's a tough one. Um, But I've I've suffered through that throughout my career. You know, having to been part of it or or watching it happen is just – it's like watching really good food go to waste. Mm. Yeah. Um, I talk about it in terms of, I call it hot dog content, where (laughs) or hot dog writing, where so many hands have touched something that at the end, like, you don't know whether this thing is made of snouts or hooves or tongues or what is in this thing. Like, it just doesn't, it just doesn't, you can't recognize it as, as any one thing. And so I think hot dog writing tends to happen in a lot of companies where people have an opinion about what should we be writing about and how should we be writing. Um, so yeah, I have a whole section in the book about how do we actually avoid hot dog writing? How do we think instead about how to manage it a little bit? Mm-hmm. You know, the reality is that writing by committee is going to happen within some organizations, but I try to set some guidelines for for people who find themselves working inside big organizations, maybe as part of a big marketing team, who find themselves subject to this too often. Um, and so I offer a couple of specific ideas for how do we get through hot dog writing so that we not so that when we have a product at the end that it, it doesn't feel like it's been extruded through so many messaging machines and opinionators <laughs> that we can't recognize it. Oh, so we're talking about how sausage is made, hot dogs are made, and we're talking about barfing. I'm, I'm sorry to do this to the to the listener, um, <laughs> but it was it was it was uh, something that I think a lot of listeners probably struggle with, particularly the marketers and the content folks. Let's go to uh, the second part: writing rules, grammar, and usage. Maybe just two quick questions. Page 131, explain what you mean when you write real words are still harder to come by than we might think. Mm. Yeah, I think it's easy for many of us to rely on business speak, you know, the the language of business rather than just, you know, speaking conversationally, speaking directly to people who matter to us. Um, And so I still see it a whole lot. I still see words that just don't feel like real words to me. Um, Very often, it's a kind of word that has a a lot of things bolted onto it. So things like prioritization, instead of just saying, making it a priority. Oh, Franken-words, I think you call them. Yeah, Franken-words, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or Weblish. (laughs) Yeah, revolutionized. Yeah, all kinds of things like that. And so I'm just suggesting, I think that real words are, are always preferable, the non-real words, the fake words, can take several different um, shapes, but I think ultimately 
We want to avoid jargon as much as we can, with some exception. I think sometimes jargon is okay when it signals a sort of insider status, and we all know that there is some shared language within certain industries, and I think that's fine. I'm not saying you can't use that, but I am saying that, you know, think carefully about what those words are, and are they actually signaling belonging to somebody, or are they just kind of jargon that you're relying on because you've always used those kind of words? <laughs> um, you know, buzzwords are another area. It's, um, it's just you know, it, it's lazy writing, I think. And so mm -hmm. I'm just challenging you to maybe not just rely on them, but maybe think about a more engaging and, and real and kind of human way to speak to somebody. Yes. And I love how you write that the language of business is a cliche landfill. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so true. Oh my so goodness. True. And you know, that's been true for decades. I, I mean, I'm certainly not the first person to say this. I think I talk about the clue train manifesto in here. Yes. Um, and it's funny because when I wrote this, I was thinking to myself, I wonder if anybody even knows what the Clue Train Manifesto is. And my millennial consultant, who is my, my daughter, Caroline, who is 25 <laughs> years old and works in marketing, she was my, she was my uh, proxy for that, for a younger generation. And I would say to her, you know, do you know who Rocky Balboa is, for example? Oh, right, or, right. Do you know what a Rolodex is? Which sounds ridiculous if you are older and know exactly what a Rolodex is. But mm -hmm. I thought, you know, she's never used a Rolodex in her life. I don't know if she's ever actually seen one. So, um, so she, was my, she was my proxy for that. She did not know what the Clue Train Manifesto was, because I think that came out in like 1999. She was two years old. Mm -hmm. um, so I did have to explain that a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's actually a lesson in not only using real words, but using actual metaphors and analogies and uh, of your audience instead of maybe just what your own life experience is. Right, right. Oh, my goodness. So... You you mentioned you have a section on uh, voice, voice rules. Let me ask you a question about that. Explain what you mean when you write that brand tone of voice is not a small throwaway thing, and yet most companies treat it that way. I think a big change between 2014 and 2022, so between the first edition of this book and the second edition of this book, is that... The idea of brand voice has evolved a whole lot than a whole lot more than it than it um, or it's it's more mature now, and I think we are considering brand voice differently than we did, you know, even eight years ago. Can you explain, um, folks, what what it is? What you mean by brand voice? Yeah, so brand voice is basically how you or, or let me just actually take it back even further. So voice is when you read a piece of writing, how it sounds in your head, like full stop. That's it. Like. How does it sound to you? Does it sound like this person is trustworthy? Does it sound like that they're kind of fun? Does it sound like they know what they're talking about? And it can be any piece of, of writing that you're reading. I mean, it could be the back of a cereal box. You know, what is these, what is the sugar smacks saying to me? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. is it, is it joyful? Is it fun? Is it fun to read? And what is it, what is it signaling to you about the person writing it? So that's how you think about it in a literary construct, maybe. But I think brand voice, when we think about that, it's all of those things, but it's, instead, it's also signaling who you are as a company. It signals your brand personality, essentially, what you're like to deal with as a company. So who you are, what you're like to deal with, what you're like to do business with, like that's who, that's what brand voice actually signals. 
And I think in a world where, again, post-COVID world, we, especially in the B2B space, we are not seeing people face-to-face as often as we did Mm -hmm. in a post-COVID world. Very often our content is stepping in to be that, um, it's carrying our personality to our prospects. But it's not just COVID. I mean, I think it's, it's part of the content marketing evolution too, right? Where very often, like, I mean, it's well documented that in a B2B sales construct that your customers are not raising their hand until they're really far into the funnel, right? So in that situation, it's your content that is signaling who you are and what you're like to deal with. And so you need to think about your brand voice because it's an opportunity to convey all of that to a prospect. Um, and so I, I've seen a whole lot more attention being paid to brand voice, not enough, which is why I have a whole section on it and helping Mm -hmm. you think through what is my brand voice and not only how do we develop it, but then how do we continue to evolve it? And it's been something that I've been talking a lot about this fall because the default in brand voice is often to figure out what your brand voice is, decide what you sound like, what you're like to deal with, all of that stuff. And then you write it down, you put it on a metaphorical shelf somewhere, maybe it's stuck in an intranet somewhere, or maybe it's literally on the shelf in the CMO's office, and you kind of forget about it. (laughs) But that's not what brand voice is. Brand voice is ever evolving. It should change we as businesses and and especially in the market in the marketing space we need to not just adhere to brand voice which is quite often how we think about it we think of it as like oh we need to write like a brand it's more constrictive instead i think we need to not just adhere to it but i think we need to steward it so we need to evolve it you know, always in relationship to what's going on in the world around us, because that's the thing we do in marketing. It's like literally what our job is to communicate with audiences. And those audiences are living in the world and evolving and changing just like we are. And so it's, I I think it's our challenge as marketers to not just adhere to the brand voice and to think about guidelines, but instead to how do we evolve and steward our voice to be more relevant, to continue to be relevant as the world shifts and changes. Yes. And when I stumble upon a a brand with a a clear and consistent brand voice, it Mm -hmm. really, it's really noticeable and it's just like a rocket booster. So that's uh, interesting that you have that, that whole section there. And, you know, there's even chapters like how to develop your brand voice. So not to be afraid, yeah. folks. Yeah. No. One of, yeah. One of the things I talk about in the book, and I, I, I truly believe this. It's what I do with my own work as well. Is if you cover up the logo, if you if you mask the from line on your email <laughs> yes. newsletter, for example. Yes. If you cover up the logo on your social feed, if you strip off any visually identifying bit. And you just read the words or you just watch a video or you just listen to a podcast. Does it sound different? You know, do you have a point of view? Do you have a perspective? Do you have a personality? And if you can recognize yourself and if your customers, more importantly, can recognize you, then you've achieved a phenomenal brand voice. And that, I think, is where we all want to get to as marketers. It's not, and as businesses, actually, not just as marketers, it's not all that complicated. And the thing I don't like about, I should say it's not complicated, it's hard. But I will, I'll acknowledge that it's hard. But I think, you know, I give you tools for, for how to access it and how to evolve it. The thing is that the idea of brand voice can sound kind of 
high-minded. You know, it sounds kind of literary, but it's not. It's literally your personality and, and what you're signaling to your audience. Like, that's it. So don't be afraid of it. I think it's a great opportunity to embrace. Agreed. So there was a, a great line where you write, most companies spend shipping containers full of time documenting the visual attributes of a brand and a shot glass full on documenting voice. Mm-hmm. You had me at shot glass. So, <laughs> yeah, interesting. So uh, let's talk uh, about the story part, story rules. And let me just quote from uh, page 197. You write, uh, the best marketing has figured out the power of story. Powerful storytelling stirs emotions. It can shape beliefs and change behaviors. It can help complex ideas or concepts become more accessible. Storytelling helps make us memorable because humans remember stories more than facts or figures or concepts. And of course, the explosion of marketing platforms and channels now offers us exponentially more ways to tell and share stories. Which is why in the past few years, we've seen a bounty of inspired brand storytelling. But we've also seen some terrible efforts. Mm. <laughs> what are some of the things that companies are, are still getting wrong about storytelling or perhaps the, the, the biggest challenges or obstacles? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the first is that we tend to not really understand what a story is. We get really caught up on the structure of a story, and we, we, we overcomplicate it. Agreed. Fundamentally, a story is really just talking to people who matter to your business about how you help them, how your product or service lives in the world, some real world um a real world demonstration of, of, you know, the value that you offer. Like that's all it really is. It's a, it's an emotional connection. It's allowing your audience to make an emotional connection because it sees how you are helping somebody, the value that you provide. Like that's it. A story is just really just a mechanism for a, for an emotional connection. So yes, there are different ways to tell it. And I offer a storytelling structure within within the book itself. But fundamentally, you know, it's really just about thinking through the value that you offer. How do you actually make your customer the hero of that story? How do you actually help them see themselves? And how do you make them feel something? That's really what a story does. (laughs) Well, a great writing makes people feel something. Mm -hmm. So one quick question, a vocabulary one, but I, I don't remember this one from before. What is messaging karaoke? Yes, that's a new chapter as well. Okay, good. <laughs> I love how carefully you read this, by the way. I really appreciate that. Well, I enjoyed it. I loved it. It's so funny. Yeah, messaging karaoke is, um, you know, you see this a lot in, in sales lessons, right, or sales outreach, where instead of really thinking about, and actually you see it in thought leadership too, um, in no shade, but I'm just saying I do tend to see it, Um it's messaging karaoke is when instead of thinking about, you know, basically writing to one person, thinking about what is actually my message that I want to convey to that person, instead you just sort of reach for the templated, the tried and true, the cliches, like all of that stuff. Um, and so messaging karaoke is when we just kind of parrot what's already out there or when <laughs> what others are saying instead of really thinking about our own perspective and our own point of view. Yeah, you're right. Uh, there's an example is um, a LinkedIn company profile page. You put blank, mercifully, you don't name the company. Blank is a 
contemporary future-focused consulting services company equipped for the mm-hmm. next era of business with the latest in <laughs> management thinking and enabled by cutting-edge web technology. And I'm going to stop there. Just oh, yeah. I, I'm going I'm to declare the mercy rule. It's rough. So it's like karaoke. They're all singing the same song. Mm-hmm. Most people not doing it very well. Right. Um, so. Right. Well, let's uh, jump to publishing rules. And I don't want that to scare people. Let me quote from, uh, where is it? Part five, just so people understand what this section is. Offers guidelines on how to act like a publisher by adopting some best practices from traditional journalism, including Mm -hmm. a broader awareness of the responsibility and privilege that come with building an audience. It also offers inspiration for how media companies tap into cultural trends to stay relevant and relatable. Think of it this part is journalism school for marketers adapted for a digital age. Mm-hmm. Just one question I wanted to ask, because again, there's so many things we could talk about, but that was from, uh, I think it was page 230, where you write, comparing yourself with your competitors in an open, transparent way is a way to catapult trust. Mm. A lot of people don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Crazy, right? Yeah, but uh, it brought to mind uh, Marcus Sheridan, They Ask You Answer. Mm-hmm. Talk about comparing yourself, because it seems like that and maybe not talking about any kind of aspect of price on your website just mm. freaks people out. Yeah, this is like Marcus Sheridan's wheelhouse right here. Yeah. I mean, the guy is a master at it, and if you don't know They Ask You Answer, I, you, you must have had Marcus on the show. Yeah. Yeah. He's a member of the Marketing Book Podcast Three Timers Club. Mm, yeah, he's fantastic. So um, he's getting uh, discount coupons at any uh, Tappahannock, Virginia Taco Bell. Mm, that's a great idea. Are there any Taco Bells in Tappahannock, Virginia? Yes, I checked before oh. I interviewed him the third time about the visual sale. Mm. So, yeah, but we don't need to go down there too far. But when you come back in 2030 for the third time, <laughs> you will never pay as much at Taco Bell uh, in the future. <laughs> but uh, yeah, they ask you answer. But you've seen it done. Uh, well, I guess most people are saying, no, we can't talk about our, our competition. Yeah, I think it's actually, I, I don't think it's for everybody. Um, because, And the only reason why I say it's not for everybody is because I'm not so sure that you will have the leadership support in it. And so, but I think for the right kind of companies, and if you do have the leadership support, then I think it's a fantastic move. Um, so yeah, Marcus Sheridan is, is um, you know, is, is the master at this. But when we talk about, you know, mentioning your own products and services in connection with your competitors, I think that comparing yourself, your own offerings with your competitors in a very honest and transparent way is a great way to signal that trust with an audience because the reality is that your audience is already researching you so yeah. they're going to they're going to unearth this information whether you give it And to you're them not or a not. fit for every right, exactly. customer. Right. And so why not? Like why not take the opportunity to compare your own products and services or maybe your approach or how you do the work? With your competitors. I mean, to me, it just kind of makes sense. You know better than anybody why you might be better than others in a certain way. But I also think that it's 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 good to also acknowledge the cons. You know, you and why do I think that's important? Because you're building trust, you're being honest, but you're also showing your audience what sets you apart in a very balanced way. 
In the book, I talk about a law firm called Levenfeld Perlstein, and I love so much about how Levenfeld Perlstein, as a law firm, professional services company, sells their services. I tell their story in there. But one of the things that they do very well is they talk about pricing. They talk about how much does this actually cost mm -hmm. to hire an attorney to do, I don't know, um, to handle my copyright infringement case. They list the range. Now, they can't pinpoint it because as anybody in professional services know or anybody who has ever hired a lawyer knows, it's dependent on how many hours, but they do have a pretty good range that they can give you, right? They can ballpark it. So that's what they do. They said in a typical case for this kind of situation, you can expect to pay X. So I love that they do that. They're very transparent about their pricing. And I think they're signaling something really profound on those pages, which is that we are confident in our services. We can we, we know we're good and we can help you, but if you're freaked out by this, then we're probably not such a great fit for you. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, Doug, I mean, you are not going to be a fit for everybody. I would much rather use my content as a, as a magnet attracting people to me, but also as a way to repel those who are not going to be a good fit. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like a disqualification tool. Because honestly, it's like, it's, it's an easier way. Like you don't want to be nurturing customers or prospects who are going to be a terrible fit for you. So you might as well weed them out right away. <laughs> right. And that's essentially what, what this approach does. And that's what, what Marcus talks about beautifully as well. So let's go to the very last, uh, well, not the very last, but part six, just so people will know what's in here. You write parts one through five of this book, deliver pretty much everything you need so you can create content that will make you ridiculously proud of yourself. But because marketers are often tasked with specific kinds of writing in part Six, I've taken up some of the most common writing tasks that land in our laps. Mm -hmm. The previous sections help you set a strong foundation for your writing skills. These 20 chapters shore up the specifics so your content is as sturdy as a Jenga tower with its blocks hot glued together. <laughs> Keep this section handy. It will make you look decisive and informed when the others in your Zoom meeting stay on mute and wait for someone else to answer. Turn here to part six when Stella, the CEO, asks you for a video script for that new product launch. Use it when your team decides to remake the company email newsletter and you sense it's already going off the rails. Or when something gets goofed up and you need to address it publicly. Thumb mm -hmm. through it when your client needs a boilerplate or wants help winning a speaking spot on a big stage. So quickly, you mentioned Rocky Balboa. We can't just leave that alone. Why is Rocky Balboa, why is email the Rocky Balboa of marketing? I thought you were going to say, well, you know, Rocky Balboa is to, is to what in marketing? Um, yeah, I know. I, I kind of, I kind of screwed that up. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why I think that email is a Rocky Balboa of marketing is because. Now um, your daughter knew who Rocky Balboa was? She said, kind of. Okay, so maybe we should explain so it for kind them. Of. Well, I actually, that's why I wrote the section the way that I did, because in the book, I talk about how email is like the original Rocky and then the explainer, the explainer of the iconic underdog everyone underestimates, yet who always wins, mm -hmm. not so much the retired Rocky of later films. Who right. And not, not pretty, not flashy. Yeah. But it gets um, the job done, right? Yes. It's like... It's like everybody will disrespect it. They'll count him out. But ultimately, like Rocky R always wins. And I think that's the same is very true of email. Um, 
So, yeah, I'm a big, big fan of email, direct response email, email newsletter. I think um, especially if we can use it with a little bit more care and intention, it's just um, it just delivers such value for all of us as as businesses. Yes, I think I heard Jay Bear once describe email marketing as the connective tissue Mm -hmm. of digital marketing. And it really, really works well. And I appreciate you mentioning it in the book, just how effective it is. And I've even had clients in the past say, oh, we don't want to spam people. And the response is, well, you shouldn't. Right, <laughs> this needs course. to be so good that your your uh, subscribers would miss it. They would say, hey, mm-hmm. where where is it? But but speaking of newsletters, before we move on, I, I saw you at Content Marketing World a couple years ago, and you gave this phenomenal keynote on this brand new shiny concept. Uh, I think it was called Newsletters. <laughs> <laughs> And it just blew my mind that, you know, here's Ann Hanley saying, it's, it was almost like, um, have you guys forgotten about newsletters? Do you realize yeah. how effective they are? Why does, remind folks of why everybody should, you know, everybody should have an email newsletter, but w- with a few caveats. Yeah. The aha moment for me was when I realized that email was in a kind of renaissance, was resurgence. It has... It, it had a lot to do with what was going on in the social networks. You know, when social media came out, we all thought, oh my God, like what a great opportunity to speak directly to our customers. Like we can literally have an on-page conversation with them. We can get to know them at a different level. We have all this data around them now. We know their preferences and their behavior and what they do and where they go and what time they go to bed. And And that brought about a lot of uh, email marketing is dead blog posts, as I recall. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, I see those all the time still. Um, Fill in the blank but, is dead. <laughs> right. But then, like, you know what happened, right? Of course, the algorithm said, oh, nay, nay, marketers, you're not going to have access to all this data unless you pay us a lot of money. So suddenly, we were fighting the algorithm to get into the mind of the people who we previously could, like, were just automatically in front of. Um, you know, we see it on Instagram still. It's like, it's crazy to try to cut through there. So... In my mind, I thought, why are we trying to fight an algorithm to try to get through in a social way when we can instead focus on building our own relationship, building our own database, and thinking about using that email newsletter as a mechanism? So I don't think we should not be using social media. In fact, I am a big fan of social media. Mm -hmm. I enjoy it. But at the same time, I think we should be always thinking about how do we actually take those relationships off of social media and port them over into our email newsletter? Or how do we use it as part of our overall marketing ecosystem, connecting those two things together? And so I think an email newsletter is hugely valuable for for all of us as companies, as people, I mean, you know, across the board. But I think how we approach the email newsletter is is really the game changer. In the book I talk about, and actually at that talk at Content Marketing World, I think I, I, I said this as well, that the most important part of the newsletter is not the news, it's the letter. Yes. It's not about what we have to say. It's a. It's not about the news that we want to deliver. Instead, it's about the letter. It's about that opportunity to connect with one person at one time in their mailbox. And I think the more that we can appreciate and honor that relationship that we have with one person in their email inbox, then the better off we are. And, I, you know, I see signals of this all the time, like from brands. I see so often of, um, of newsletters that come out and they say, hey, friends, friends, plural. Like, <laughs> Hey, everybody. Yeah. 
hey, everybody. Like you see it on YouTube too, people saying, hey, all. It's not that. Like there's not a whole entire audience there. There's one person watching you at one time. There's one person looking at your email on their phone or there's one person opening up their email on your desktop. So just small signals like that, I yeah. think can really just, just change the way you communicate. One person at one time. It's like this newsletter I get every other Sunday from this writer, and she starts by saying, hey, you. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I'm referring to Anne Hanley's email newsletter, and mm-hmm. if you don't do anything else, folks, please sign up for her newsletter. I'm going to have a link to it on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. That's how you do it right. I really I look forward to them, and you better not stop them, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> Never in a million years. Thank you. Good. Well, Anne, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? I just want us all to have a little bit more fun with our writing. And I think we want to stop thinking about it as something that's hard or difficult or impossible to do. And instead, an opportunity to show a little personality to the people who matter to us. And also... If you are one of those adult onset writers, (laughs) don't think of yourself as somebody who doesn't write. I think, you know, we are literally, especially those of us who are in marketing and, and communications and sales, we are literally in the communications game. And writing is just one tool in our tool set. And we need to work it to get better. You can't automatically assume that you're going to know how to use Google for analytics unless you go to a Google for analytics training course or or watch a YouTube video about how to use it. And Uh I think the very same thing is true of writing. It's not an automatic thing that we all know how to do or we don't know how to do. Instead, it's a tool. It's a tactic. It's something that we can get better at and we should be using a whole lot more effectively to build audiences for ourselves and for our companies. Oh, well said. And you know, it brings to mind the idea of creativity. I've had some books on the show over the years about creativity and it's, uh, or, or, or books on innovation. And they, they talk about, you know, it's, it's really a, a practice. You have to have a process. It's, it's so similar. Like uh, all the books on creativity, they, they uh, disabuse the reader of lightning in a bottle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it's uh, almost the other side of the coin of what you're talking about in terms of uh, writing, practicing writing. So let's give the listener one thing they could do today to put in action one of the ideas from their book, just something they could do as soon as they stop listening to this. So one of the things that we didn't talk about that I think is a very valuable process for us all to make part of our daily lives is to write every day. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that you need to sit down and pen pages on hand. You don't have to have a quill feather pen and sit down in any kind of precious way. I give you a very specific way to ease into the idea of of creating content every day um, in the book, and it's called the Linda Berry Foursquare Technique. You Mm -hmm. literally take a page in a notebook, in a journal, whatever you use, and you divide it into four sections, and you record what you saw, what you did, what you heard, and then you draw a little doodle to represent your day. And the reason why I shared that with permission of the brilliant Linda Berry is because it is such an easy way, I think, for us to become more tuned into our lives with the idea of, yes, becoming stronger writers and better storytellers and all of that, but also because, you know, life moves at us fast, you know, and I think unless we are very intentional and we take a few minutes to sit down and just do some kind of reflection on 
the state of our world internally, externally, it doesn't matter. Um, I think we do ourselves a disservice as people. And so that has been a game changer for me. I have always been a terrible, terrible journaler. I have never been able to successfully keep a diary until I started thinking about it in this very practical way. And it's just it's just changed changed how I write. It's changed what I remember. And it's changed how I, how I view my world too, which sounds like a very overblown goal, but it's 100% true. Oh, it's great. It's from the chapter titled, How to Keep a Daily Writing Ritual When You Aren't Feeling It. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so, you know how we feel. The other thing that comes to mind is the, uh, which I mentioned earlier, is the title of the first section, Writing Rules, How to Write Better and How to Hate Writing Less. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. well, are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Oh, man. Um, you mentioned Melanie Diesel earlier. Um, I have I have a copy of Prove It. I have not had a chance to dig into it yet, but, um, but it is on my bedside table. So she is um, somebody who I love as a person and I admire as a marketer. And so I'm looking forward to that. She wrote it with Phil, Phil Jones, another fantastic human being. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I think that is that's on my list right now. I'm also, though, I mean, I'm a big reader of fiction as well as autobiographies. And right now, speaking of E.B. White and my love for Charlotte's Web, and now I can hear her voiced as Julia Roberts. Um, You're welcome. I'm also reading, you know, I'm reading um, Here is New York, which is a, ni- I think it's 1948, 49, something like that. It's post-World War II. Observations of New York City, penned by the incredible E.B. White, also author of Charlotte's Web, author of The Elements of Style, co-author of The Elements of Style, author of Stuart Little. But he was also a prolific essayist, writer for The New Yorker, um, just a a supremely talented individual. And um, so I'm reading his slim little essay of a book now called Here is New York. And the reason why I bring it up is because you can learn so much by just stepping out of your everyday life, right? Your everyday reading. So as much as I love marketing books and business books, I also read a lot of books just with the mindset of, you know, what can I learn from this? How Mm -hmm. does E.B. White put together a sentence? How does he describe something? The man is a genius. And, uh, and I learned so much. I have learned so much about writing just from reading his work over the years. And so this is a new one for me and I'm, I'm excited about it. Oh, that's interesting. I, I might get that from my 24-year-old daughter who lives in Manhattan, who was an English major, mm. uh, and, and who doesn't listen to this podcast, so she won't know that she's getting it for Christmas. Cool. Um, and Prove It was on the podcast uh, quite recently, and Melanie mentioned this book of yours. Whoa, so full it's moment. all going on there. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable, including all the books that have been mentioned, your website, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account. You actually have two. And I'm going to include a link, as I mentioned before, for everyone to sign up for Anne's newsletter, which is called Anarchy. Get it? Mm-hmm. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Anne and congratulate her on the book and thank her for being a, a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send her a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or, or go to the website. But please reach out to her because I really want her to come back in 2030 uh, for, the, for the third time. Guests on the show have told me that they really enjoy hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners, and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are really, really, really ridiculously good-looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like 
Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. The book is Everybody Writes, Your New and Improved Go-To Guide to Creating Ridiculously Good Content. The author is Anne Hanley. And thank you very much for returning to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. It's been a joy. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.